week on Dig Me Out, Tim and Jay are joined by Blinker of the Stars, Jordan Zadarazny, to revisit the 1999 album August Everywhere. Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I'm your host, Tim Minichi, and joining me once again, my co-host, Mr. Jason Ziak. Jay, we have an album on this episode that is a rarity in that we both actually bought it when it came out. <laughs> that sounds so bad. Well, <laughs> what usually ends up happening is that either you buy an album and then you go yeah. later, hey, you should buy this album, or I get an album, or we both completely missed an album and some fan or you know uh, sends one in, and then we go, oh, why? how did we miss this? Yeah. But this is actually one that we were on the ball. We, we, were, we were on top of things when it came out. Well, I, I think so. And of course, I'm talking about the album August Everywhere, uh, released in 1999 by Blinker the Star. And it just so happens to help us dig into this album, we have none other than the man behind Blinker the Star. I am going to slaughter this name, but I'm going to do my best to get it right because he just... Explain the pronunciation like 30 seconds ago, but then he gave me the, the, the real pronunciation, and that's what's in my head right now. <laughs> so it's Jordan Zadarazny. Perfect. Thank God. Okay. <laughs> Jordan, welcome that's... to the show. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Take a deep breath, Tim. I am. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna <laughs> to cool out now. You know, that is, I, I have no issues with doing this show except for name pronunciations. Whenever we get to that part, it's like I start white knuckling it. It's like I'm. <laughs> it's got it in your head. It's, it gets in my head. It messes, it messes with, with me. It's like, a, it's like I'm getting uh, uh, run down by a, a chatty corner and I'm trying to run a fly pattern and he, he's getting in my head. Anyway. So, Jordan has a new record out. Uh, it's called. We Draw Lines, just came out this May. Can you tell us a little bit about the new record before we get into the history of the band? Well, it's uh, it's kind of like the first one. It's a bit of a solo record with um, with a few friends, and I put it together over the last couple of years. And um, kind of just did everything myself this time at my own studio. And that's um, French Kiss Studio, is that yeah, right? Yeah, French Kiss Recording Studio. Excellent. And this... I failed to mention, this is our first uh, is it international call, because you're in Canada. I am. And we are in the United States, so this is our, we are reaching across the border, and um, we've, we've never gone this far in terms of an interview, so. It's, yet somehow he's still in our time zone. Yeah, somehow he's still in our time zone. <laughs> hey, so We're used to that not working out for us. <laughs> right. Why don't we get into the history of Blinker the Star? History of the band. So usually we rattle off some facts from Wikipedia and allmusic.com to fill in the history of the band. But in the rare occasion that we have somebody here from the band, we like to probe them with questions so that we can actually get accurate information. Yeah. So, Blink of the Star. First of all, where did the band name come from? Um... My wife asked me that last night. Um, uh, my manager and I, Mike, um, he he kind of um, uh, 
he kind of grabbed me out of the scene in Montreal and said, um, you know, I believe in you, kid. Um, I'm going to put some cash up front. Let's let's put out a record. We'll put it out indie and we'll try to get a deal. And that's how kind of the I'd already been making music, you know, for years and years and compiling recordings. But that was the moment when it became, well, we got to think of a band name. So he sent me home and I, I just, you know, blurted out 60 or 70 band names as one does and just uh, wrote them all down. And I gave it to Mike and he said, Blinker the Star is the one. So that's the true story of how the band came. Cool. And then, so the release that you're talking about, is that the first self-titled album that came out on Treat and Release? Exactly, yeah. For a few months before that, we had we had made up maybe 500 copies and put them in a few stores, a few cool stores on the East Coast. Um, and um, we called the label Vibra Cobra, which Mike still, still has on his own now. Cool. And then, so was th- that was pretty much on your own that record you had did you have some people come in and play instruments or did you pretty much play everything it was all done in in pembroke i'd moved to montreal when i was 19 and i would come back on weekends where i had my studio in my parents basement and would you know record songs and so over a couple of years i had built up all these lo-fi recordings all done on um half inch uh eight track machine Tascam, and and a little board and uh and then by 93 or I guess 94 um, that's when that's when Mike came in and we um, you know brought the album down I, I did it mostly by myself but there was a few just whoever was around in Pembroke okay. it was mostly a solo recording that first one though. and then the second album comes out in 96 on A&M and that's A Bourgeois Kitten mm-hmm. uh, how did you end up getting on the A&M for that record well, A&M actually signed us on the first record, and Treat and Release was affiliated with A&M. It was kind of um, ah. what some people would call a fake indie. Oh, we talked about uh, that a couple episodes ago. Yeah, it's we talked about the fake indies. A, yeah, you know what? It's really just kind of more like what Pickwick was to RCA. It's just kind of like the smaller branch, you know? Right. Mm-hmm. Slightly different taste agenda. So, you know, uh, it was a time when the majors were obviously um, trying to cash in on you know, the exploding grunge scene. And uh, so this was the little outfit they had out of San Francisco, which was uh, three people, all with great sort of, um, you know, um, good credentials. And and they they, they ran the label out of, um, it was an, it was a former um, Christian radio station um, right near bottom of the hill, I think. It's close to there. Cause we would just walk down and um and that's where treat and release was yeah it only lasted a few years so then at some point did you move to california after bourgeois kitten um, okay came, went yeah and that's is okay so i'm getting the timeline here somewhere in there um you signed to dreamworks okay so yeah a&m signed with a&m in 90 90- I guess early 95 put out self-titled um, on treat and release slash A&M whatever distribution uh, Bourgeois Kitten A&M proper on, in 96 97 uh, uh, finished up the tour for that album worked with Courtney Love at the end of 97 
then moved to LA mid or early, early 98, I think. And then you start working on this album that we're going to be reviewing, the August Everywhere. In, in late 98, yeah. Okay. That album comes out, and then there's a little bit of a break in between there, between 99 and then 2003 is when Still in Rome comes out, the next album. What was the cause of the, uh, you, you know, you had to put out three albums in basically like five years, and now mm-hmm. it's five, like four years later before the next one. Was there, were you touring a lot? Was there, uh, what was going on at that point? Well, between, between Bourgeois Kitten and August Everywhere, there was what, a three year break, right? Um, yeah. Yeah, that was a time where, you know, that record didn't live up to expectations on, on I don't think, any level. Uh, but the, the label stuck with me, interestingly, and said, you know, let's, let's just take a break here. Write, write a bunch of songs. Let's see what you can do. Like, you know, let's see if you can, you know, come up with something decent this time. Um, because I didn't have a lot of time to write the songs on Bourgeois Kitten. So I went away for a while and then moved it out to California and then found all these collaborators. So, you know, there was a protracted demoing process before August Everywhere that led to that three-year break. And then uh, as we were recording the album, actually mixing, no, we finished mixing it, and then A&M got bought out by Grooms Universal. At that point, uh, I was assigned a new, my a person was fired. I was assigned a new person. Um, and they said, um, well, Jimmy Iovine uh, loves your record, but uh, we don't hear a single. Are you interested in writing a single? And at that point, um, I kind of wasn't. And there was, you know, Ken had, Ken Andrews, the producer, had had given the record out to a few people. And and I knew there was some interest out there elsewhere. So I kind of let that lapse. They dropped me. And... um, and then DreamWorks came into the picture. They'd heard the album and um, asked me if I was interested in teaming up with them. And I really was. It was a great label. Wow. So it was done and, and ready to go. And you basically... The album was for... finished. And then and then I, I in the meantime, I came back to Pembroke, um, gave up my apartment and just kind of was waiting to see what would happen. And you... uh, I, I, was, I was writing at the time. When DreamWorks signed me, they said, hey, do you have any new songs? I said, yeah, I got, I got 10 songs. And we listened to them, and then we picked those two new songs. One was Pretty Pictures. The other one was There's Nowhere You Can Hide. Came back down to L.A., recorded those two songs with DreamWorks as the official label, them paying for the budget, mm-hmm. uh, and um, did those two songs to finish the album. Interesting. Hmm. Yeah. So was there any fear during that time that you had this album done and maybe it would never see the light of day? Absolutely. Um, <laughs> everyone was getting dropped even as we were mixing. Mm. I'm trying to think of the exact chronology, but I think it was late 98, actually. So I, I may have the recording. We may have started the recording much earlier, actually. So um, everyone was getting dropped. Um, all of the you know other alternative bands that were on A&M were getting dropped, even before, you know even before the big merger and stuff, so or takeover. Um, I, I made a phone call to the vice president and, and, and begged him <laughs> to, to please let us finish this record as I thought that we really were onto something special here. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know if it had anything to do with it, but I, I think we were one of the only bands that was allowed to keep going 
you know, at 2,500 bucks a day at, in the mix room at A&M to finish the record. Mm. And it wasn't cheap, and we had three tape machines synced up, and it was, you know, one song every two days, and they let us finish it. And then I, you know, luckily, then I had a record, you know? Mm-hmm. Because if, if we wouldn't have finished it, mixed it, you know, I couldn't have really done, I couldn't have really had access to the, those recordings anymore. It would have just sat. And luckily, DreamWorks was interested, so that solved all my problems. Okay. Wow. I had uh, no idea. Yeah, that's yeah. a lot. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> no, I no. mean, that's, that's, we like to hear, like, the little behind-the-scenes stuff. That's Yeah, that's I'm just trying to, trying to remember it as, I, as I'm thinking about it now, but I think that's pretty accurate now. Well, it's funny, because I've read a couple of biographies recently. I've, um, Joe, the bass player from Watershed, which is a Columbus band that was on Epic, and then I read Butch Walker's um, biography recently. He, you know, he was in Marvelous 3, obviously, and um, everybody talks about whenever their label got bought or their A&R guy got fired, always was like doom for the, yeah. for the band. Like, that's when the, that's when the shit hit the fan, when one of those two things happened. Yeah. And, that's, and it seemed like that know, happened that's... like every six months. Well, lawyers started writing in what was the was the, the key man clause, you know, into contracts for bands to protect them from that, so that if you lose your guy, who you have this relationship with, you don't have a relationship with anyone else. They didn't come to your shows. They don't. They don't care about you. Mm-hmm. So you know, losing that guy can really doom you. You're right. So then, in 2003, uh, Still in Rome comes out on Maple Nation Records. What what was that about? In terms of, were you was that ending your relationship with DreamWorks, or were you looking yeah, for so, to put out an independent? No, I. There was so after August Everywhere, there was a period of. Um, I mean, the label they they really liked me, and I had good relations with several people there um, uh, that mattered, and they they said that they wanted to make another record with me. And God, they spent some money on the po- in that post August everywhere period. We went into the studio with August with sorry with uh, Lindsey Buckingham for 14 or 12 days. That wasn't cheap. Um, and yeah, you know, got, got two un- two unfinished songs <laughs> at the village and um, uh, they 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 let me into a beautiful analog boutique studio for 10 days at God, a crazy budget too. Came out with a couple unfinished songs. Um, I was sort of re- resisting because of the commercial, you know, relative failure of the record. I was sort of resisting wanting to do another record like August Everywhere. I, I didn't, you know, I thought it was good work, but I, I wanted to move on from it um, and try something else. And we'd been touring too. That's the other thing I, I remembered the other day was we'd been touring so. We're opening for these bands at the height of sort of, you know, rap rock era, 99, you know, and that's why it was hard to get Below the Sliding Doors, the single from the album, onto the radio. Um, It was the year before Coldplay, so it was really, you know, K-Rock started playing Metallica. There, There was, this was all in the air in 1999, and we were opening for bands that were much harder rocking than us, and I think I got it in in my head that, damn, I need to rock a little harder, maybe. Um, DreamWorks, I mean, to their credit, they said, go back with the same producer, make another 
record like August Everywhere. You know, they were of the 70s mentality of like, let's just keep kind of doing this until it clicks. I think they were right and I was wrong at the time. Um, it didn't really matter anyway. The, the label was doomed. So, I mean, I, I was dropped from the label, you know, months before it, you know, uh, stopped being a real label, just a, an imprint. Mm-hmm. Um, so I got some cash out of it and I built the studio and started um, working on my own stuff, but also started recording other bands. I had like a small hit up here with um, a guy named Sam Roberts. And so I had I was busy for a while. That's the way to go, because when we talked to Alan Johannes of Eleven, he took the money from the studio and built a or took the money from the record label and built a studio. And now he has this studio that he like has all sorts of artists come and record at. Well, Failure did it on Magnified in, in 90... What was that, four? Around they there, they yeah. talked... The, the lab, you know, they had a budget of, say, 80000 and the, they said, let's just buy the, stu- the gear, <laughs> and we'll just put yeah. it anywhere, and we can move it. And that was sort of kind of novel. That was just starting to be done back then. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, it's the best, best possible <laughs> thing to do with them any... <laughs> advance you get very smart business decision <laughs> well yeah it guarantees that you can work yep you know, as you have a place true investment mm-hmm. still in rome comes out in 2003 and this record that we um mentioned earlier we draw lines came out last month i know you were working on some projects in between can you tell us a little bit about um she loom and other things you've been working on yeah she loom came out of um uh, a previous project called uh, Digital Noise Academy, which is now also a current project again. Um, it was a wi- it was a much wider. There, there was there were a lot of members back then. The member membership kind of got condensed to five, six now. Um, anyway, Filippo was one of the guys that was originally in you know the sort of loose loose collective we had back in oh five or six or whatever. Um, Filippo's from Italy. We just started working together online and started constructing the songs. He got real serious about it. He said, I'm coming to Pembroke. And he came to Pembroke. And we, uh, he came twice. Um, and we recorded, finished the album here. So that was a, a major project that happened, I guess, in 2009. Um, what else happened? <laughs> I know that there are some other things. I was doing the Abbey stuff at that time, too. Yes, Abbey. Concentrated my own, for for my own songwriting, that was where, you know, the stuff that would have gone to Blinker was now going. And that was with um, Sophia Silva. Yes. Okay. So that got put on the back burner. I made the new Blinker, the star record. And then um, as I was just about to put it out, Sophia and I decided... Why wouldn't we just put out this record? We don't we don't need to tour. <laughs> that was always kind of the the you know the thing that kind of stopped us before. It was like God, it's hard to get a band together when we live four miles apart. Yeah. Um, but now it's like you know she's going to tour with other bands. I, I'm always going to be in the studio. I may tour here and there, but I'm I'm not I'm not going to leave the studio for very long. So, are there plans to take? Uh... Blinker on this on this like a short tours or anything like that for the new record. If it would, I, th- I think there might just be a show or two late in the summer if there's anything. 
just for fun and maybe we'll film it and record it something like that no cool. extensive touring i kind of just want to make another record it starts to become uh when you have the the internet at your fingertips it sort of doesn't make much sense to uh always go out and tour anymore does it oh i think it does make sense <laughs> and i think that's my one you know, a weak point in my marketing strategy is that i'm not mm. going to tour but i i'm not I, i'm not saying i'll never tour i just um at this moment i just would rather not yeah just rather stay in the studio for the, at this time um and then maybe maybe I'll, I'll get the hots to tour after the next record next summer or something all right well i think that brings us up to date with the history of the band I uh, want to remind all of our listeners that the History of the Band is brought to us by you people when you donate to the podcast by visiting digmeoutpodcast.com. We will uh, make you our official sponsor for the episode, or if you buy a t-shirt as well. So let's get into the record, August Everywhere. You had mentioned a little bit earlier um, that this record's a bit different than... A bourgeois kitten and i think right on the first track september already that's pretty apparent the introduction of more keyboards more electronic elements um there's a i think it's a, is it a drum loop that starts the song or is it a just affected drums it's actually an affected uh drum machine uh, just like a roland with those little small beat boxes okay and then when when the first power chords come in uh and the that chorus Ziggy there, yeah. it, it definitely uh, take everything goes to another level. You sort of get a sense of uh, the the trip you're you're getting on board for in terms of production and uh, textures and just the overall sound of it. Yeah, yeah, that's a big moment, and that's why we chose that that song um, first. And that was a that was a hell of a mix too. I remember that was a real struggle to get that one perfect. I think it's Ken's best mix actually. That song. Um, clear when Ken is contributing to a track. You know, Jay and I are big fans of Failure. We we did the Fantastic Planet album last season, and during the I don't know what the parts are necessarily. If it's a bridge or if it's the chorus, there's a picking part with a little bit of uh, effect on it, which sounds it's a very like Ken Andrews type of picking part. I don't know if on it's what's after the, on the on September already. It's after the big oh. power chord part. Yeah. Um, was that a part that Ken was like, I'll do this here? Or did you actually have that idea in mind? No, I, I totally had that on the on the demo, but I remember he responded very strongly to that part when it came okay. in, when I played him the demo. Um, but 
it's my part going through, you know, his his rig, his guitar pedals. And I think yeah. overall in this album, it'd be we'll have a lot of questions about where the demo started and where the you know the final mix oh, ended yeah. up and where the yeah. gaps the gaps were because um, it's one of those albums and um, it becomes very difficult. You know, Tim and I are musicians, so we're trying to pull apart like where was the origin of this and sometimes mm-hmm. on uh, quite a few of these songs it's very difficult to try to even figure out like was this written on guitar was it written on piano I, like i can't imagine writing like like you know the song was it constructed on a four track like how all that come together so that'll be yeah. great to uh, dig into some of that for the second out or the second song below the sliding doors so this was the single um <laughs> one of the things that jay and i were talking about when we were prepping was that there's a French language version of this song, <laughs> and um, we were we we've actually heard bands that have done, you know, foreign language versions of their songs that they either speak in or you know their nor, nor, normal languages or, or first language I guess would be English, and then they'll do like a Spanish version. Or there's a a band called Kent um, from, where are they from, Jay? Is it like Iceland or something? Sweden. And all their songs are in Swedish, but then they actually re-record all the vocals with English lyrics, which we're kind of like blown away because somehow the melodies stay the same, which (laughs) doesn't seem like it's possible. So how did, how did you able, how are you able to get across basically the same lyrics, but not lose the melody when you're doing that? Uh, the translation, I think, was loose, really loose. I had to get a translator. And as it turned out, it was a guy from a band who were very popular in Canada in the 80s called The Box. They had um, two big albums up here, pop pop band from Montreal. And uh, so I was pretty excited to meet him. And, um, you know, the lyrics are very abstract. Um, and he was like, you know, what are you, what are you, what are you, what are you going on about here? I was like, I don't know. I can't, I can't really help you. <laughs> um, I, and so he would sort of like translate a line and then he would ask me, he would say, you know, can, can it be something like this? And so some of the lines are, are a little bit different than perhaps a little bit more elegant. I, maybe it's better. Anyway, for whatever reason, I don't even know why we attempted that, but um, my pronunciation was not convincing to the um to the Quebecois so um we were ha- I was happy to put that on the shelf but I see those things floating around every once in a while <laughs> <laughs> the connection to Ken Andrews doesn't doesn't end with just him uh he also brought some friends on board um Kelly Scott plays drums on this song so yeah failure broke up and I asked Kelly to join my band like to think you know no shame select a worthy heir to your name this one it's end of Open for failure 
on Bourgeois Kitten slash Fantastic Planet tour for a number of dates. Uh -huh. And we, you know, he was, he's such a mind blowing drummer. Yeah. Yeah. When I moved to Montreal, or sorry, to Los Angeles, I was out there basically by myself. I didn't have a band anymore. And um, I asked Kelly if he would join up. So he was part of the demoing process as well, which was great because he got to really work out parts and play them twice, you know, which is mm -hmm. when you're recording drummer, he, he would always say, and I, I, think, I think he had a good point. He'd always say, you know, drummers have it the hardest because we record to a click track and a guide vocal, you know, a rhythm guitar if we're lucky and we're expected to provide all this vibe. And then you guys add everything, and then I want to change everything, and I don't get to. So yeah. on this, we kind of did get to because the the demoing process was pretty protracted. We had a lot of time, and we had access to nice rooms to do it in, whether makeshift or I had a publisher, Rondor, and we, could, we had access to the 24-track you know studio in the basement, you know, in a couple days' notice. So when you're doing so those you're... demos, is Ken involved in the demoing process, or how did you? Um, no, go from stayed out of touring. the I, I, I wrote the songs. Uh, some of them were written in Pembroke, and then when I moved down there, a good chunk of them were written either alone or with Brad Laner or with um, Below the Sliding Doors, Chris Pittman and John Parrish from from PJ Harvey. Right, we right. wrote a few songs too. Um, and that and that's what yeah the writing happened and Ken only got involved once the demos were done and then started um, working on arrangements and picking studios and how did this decision come to uh, to have him produce the record for you well I, I really got along with Ken and I loved working with him and I thought that we didn't really nail it on a bourgeois kitten and when I moved out there and I played him a number of my demos, he was like, oh, yeah, this is, we got to do it. I, I know exactly what to do. So he was excited. And um, whenever I would bring stuff over to him, he was like, yep, yep, yep. So I, I just, I, I knew it was the right choice. And I even, I mean, the label was not keen initially on Ken producing the record. So they were kind of offering me all these other options. And I was kind of turning some opportunities down and then on one in one instance Kelly and I drove down from Pembroke to Woodstock and met with Todd Rundgren and you know he's a huge huge hero of mine mm -hmm. and uh, so the label is kind of dangling this Rundgren character in front of me like to try to lure me away from Ken because they thought we were going to make Bourgeois Kitten too. and I don't blame them for thinking that of course right yeah how did they know that we were going to make this you know completely different record mm -hmm. um so we went down with todd and and, and I, I at this point we had recorded two songs with ken in proper AM gave us a budget he said go do go do two songs we did them they were like yeah they're pretty good but are you sure you don't want to try something else so we went down and talked to rungren rungren had heard those two songs and we, we were sitting there at this like outdoor cafe and there's tony levin and there's some wedding reception happening and he goes uh he goes you know I think your songs are pretty cool. You know, I'm not going to be there to record all your background vocals if you're wondering about that. So you'll just be sitting there with an engineer. And uh, I think the guy who did this did a pretty good job. So, um, you know, if you want to work with me, I'm into it. But, uh, just, you know. And so it was sort of an ambivalent response. And so, yeah. you know, and Ken was like, I want to do this. <laughs> he was hungry. Yeah. And so we kind of pushed it down there 
road a little bit. They could have said no, but they knew we were going to make a good record. And they, once we got rolling, they didn't interfere. They let us finish it, which was great. Track three, Crazy Eyes. I, this is where we get to talk a little bit about influences. Um, when we, Jay and I were discussing this song, we heard a lot of, I guess, a, a weird cross between like Jellyfish and XTC. And, you know, sort of that, like, twisted pop that those bands do. We were wondering, like, what sort of bands you were listening to growing up. Um, you would, I know you mentioned Rungren, so I'm assuming that that was somebody that was an influence or somebody that you listened to. But just what sort of things were you listening to, you know, younger? And then also, if there was stuff specifically that... I know bands sometimes will go into the studio and say, I really like the way that this album sounds. I want to get that tone or that I want to, I want to go for that sort of feel. Um, what sort of stuff was we listened to around this time when you were making this? Well, I'll answer the second one first. The Crazy Eyes specifically came from an instrumental that Brad Laner provided for me. And Brad was Very from amazing. Medicine, right? Yeah. So we were already writing songs and uh, uh, sometimes he would just give me a pre-recorded instrumental. So he gave me this thing and, um, uh, you know, guitars are in different time signatures than drums at, at times in the song. And then they all kind of meet up. And so it has this really strange architecture to it. And, but when I got it, it's, it was just, you know, stereo mix, a piece of music. So I started singing over it. And I remember I was listening to Thin Lizzy. And I wanted to kind of have that kind of attitude. I remember that being an influence on on the verses. Hmm. And the multi-layered background vocals, I remember being influenced by... I was kind of blown away by re-listening to The Reflex by Duran Duran. And those... Those kind of really thinned out um, background vocals. You know, really multi-layered and thinned out. So those are two things that were that went into that. But I mean, it really was just me singing in front of a mic, kind of grooving to Brad's <laughs> wicked little jam. It would, you know, it really was fun to I, to sing to and just pull up a mic. It came really quickly. She'll make a mess of you if you're without a are so strange and cool and and it, it was really easy to write kind of a pop melody to this like if you play the chords it's really strange you know jazzy pop or something i don't know what it is and this is one of those songs when like i said i was trying to dissect uh you know, what the process would have been for this and you're sort of confirming that was the process, it. yeah. I'm not insane. I was trying to imagine you like sitting with an acoustic guitar writing the song, and it was just not working no. out of my head. So, <laughs> no, in pop, you could never write a song like that. Yeah, yeah. And the, and the Thin Lizzy thing, in terms of like kind of the laid back, you know, kind of delivery on the vocal, totally makes sense and kind of yeah. really contrasting and, and, what the guitars are doing. And 
Yeah, and there was obviously, um, to answer the first part of the question, earlier influences. I mean, XTC was a huge, huge influence in my teenage years. Still is. Um, um, so that was all sort of coursing through, coming through, coming out through that too. Well, I so, like that you mentioned uh, Duran Duran, because I think that's the first time on the, we've ever mentioned Duran Duran in 70-something okay. episodes. <laughs> I think this episode is going to pull out a bunch of bands that maybe we haven't mentioned so far, <laughs> <laughs> which I'm really excited about. I think it's really cool. The The bass on this song is crazy. Was that pretty much written like that on the demo? And who performs it on the on the final uh, tr- the final track? Brad Laner and Brad Laner. Okay. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, on the demo... Is, I mean, it's really close to the original, but on the on the original demo, it's uh, one guitar with that kind of crazy stereo effect, and um, uh, his drums, which Kelly kind of really stuck to Brad's style of drumming, and Brad was there when we cut the drums, so we were really like making sure it was kind of loosey goosey, because mm-hmm. Kelly's a powerhouse and he's used to like, you know, really rocking through things, so. Um, so he was really, you know, doing new stuff, and he he nailed it. Like we were really happy with it. But Brad Brad's baseline came with the song, and I think, yeah, either the bass bass and guitar I think lock up, and the drums plays in a different time signature. Mm-hmm. It's totally crazy. It's great. <laughs> but yet it's uh it's interesting that there's so many players on this album. Yet yeah, it sounds pretty consistent and in terms of vibe and. Yeah. Tones and well, it's, it's all guess... the rhythm tracks were all done together, and like, I mean, really, it was the core team is really, you know, me, Ken, and Kelly, and Brad, and a little bit of Chris Pittman, but it was really just kind of us molding the record. In the end, Ken and I molding the record, and um, so it, it was, it was, con- it was, it was consistently conceived and put together. And and Ken was really when we were picking songs, we really wanted it to make sense you know <laughs> there was a lot of songs that got ditched that i was fighting for to put on the record and he was like oh. in terms so, of not fitting the the overall feel yeah and there was even yeah. a couple that i slipped in you know he didn't want right kind of girl in the end and i'm kind of glad i kept that on for the wild card song you know mm-hmm. jay mentioned people a lot of people on this record there's a couple people that kind of have imp- crazy impressive resumes um david campbell for one who i believe did some string orchestration on the record and then i'm gonna mess up his last name but it's Vinny kalita okay kaliuda kaliuda i don't yeah i don't it's got too many vowels um he's sting and and frank zappa's drummer yeah so how do you end up working with with guys like that you just call them on the phone and say hey you want to come down to the studio and (laughs) lay down some tabla or <laughs> yeah, we were we were actually in a castle in the south of France, and I said, "Vinny, do you want to play tabla on this song?" And he said, "Yes." That is the Excellent. true story. Yeah, <laughs> let's get on a jet. <laughs> we were there, and uh, yeah, I, I was on a publishing company, and they sent all these artists to a castle in the south of France that was owned by Miles Copeland, and they put you in groups of three every day, and you write a song, and you go to a little demo studio in one part of the castle. And you emerge with a song by dinner time, and you play it for everybody at the dinner table. And there's Carol King and Miles Copeland and Vinnie Kaliuta and Nancy Wilson and me, Colin James. This happened. So wait, this uh, is it, real. You're you're not like this isn't some sort yeah, of like weird medieval. 
obviously it sounds a little crazy, but it, it, uh, that's the short version of it. And so I got to go over for eight days or something. Wow. And the last day, you know, it's like camp. You immediately kind of find your allies and kind of find the cool kids that you want to hang out with. And it's all songwriters and musicians. And um, so me and John Parrish, Holly Harvey and Vinny were kind of the proggy, nerdy crew. And uh, so we requested that the three of us could write a song together on the last day. And they said, yep, yeah, sure. So we, on the last day, we wrote that song together. Uh, uh, Star Behind the Star, sorry. That's how I met Vinny. Wow. That is, the, that is by far the craziest <laughs> how a song was written story that we've ever heard <laughs> on this show. You just yeah, describe something that sounds like it's out of like the grove where all the conservatives meet once a year to pick the president. Bohemian Grove. Bohemian Grove. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I got I off this little bus and walked out onto the castle grounds, and Carol King offered me a cookie, a baby cookie. Said that I looked hungry. <laughs> That's okay. reasonable. Okay. Yeah. You know, it's a good story. Where halfway through it, Tim and I are both like, "This guy's totally screwing with us." I'm still really not have. sure this is true. I'm still. <laughs> I promise. I'm still you wary. That's awesome. Okay. Well, uh, I don't know how to recover from all that, but I'm gonna just. <laughs> I'm gonna go to the next song, which is all dreamed out. Um, you had mentioned the lyrics and and uh, on behind the sliding doors is not really knowing what they were about, and I was wondering because there's a the line that really sticks out in this song is the "You were backstage making history" line, uh-huh. which. Sort of sounds like it's a, a little bit of a, a, a shot at somebody or a dig. Um, am uh, I onto something there, or is that one of those where it was just like it sounded cool, so that's what I wrote? No, I think it was it, it was just reflected being in a lot of. I mean, I was living in Los Angeles and I was going out a lot, and uh, so yeah, it was just kind of reflecting seeing all kinds of funny antics going on in the world of rock behind closed doors I guess I don't know <laughs> I mean I Are didn't you... really think that much about it it sounded kind of good and it felt right at the time and I, I just kind of wrote it down are, are you sort of a you write down lines and then piece them together later or do you sort of have I really a... struggle I, I, I mean I work really slowly and you know you know kind of trial and error and just kind of cross things out millions of times until I get it kind of close and feeling right. Do you start, do you have a melody in line and then, or, or in mind and then try to fit words to f- match the melody or is it that you're writing lyrics and then trying to put them over top of chords and riffs and stuff? Um, sometimes I find kind of trying to do both at the same time. Like just um, say you have like um, uh, a chord sequence and instead of thinking of just coming up with a lyric or just coming up with a melody, kind of getting behind a mic and just kind of blurting out things over a couple tracks. And I find that, you know, a few, if you listen back to just two or three random takes where you're improvising both lyric and melody, that you can often kind of pull one or, oh, that sounds like I'm about, like I'm saying such and such. And you can kind of pull ideas and use those as starting points sometimes that kind of like, for things that just kind of already came out of your mouth feeling right, Kind of going with that as your starting mm-hmm. point. Yeah. 
this song also here. features uh kelly drum kelly scott on drums and it really at times takes on a feel like it could have been a b-side of fantastic planet almost um did you did you sense that as the music was coming together that there were some similarities between that record and this one and is that something that if you did notice it you were comfortable with or did you ever feel a little bit of like maybe you you were losing your identity a little bit in terms of the process or what were your feelings about some of that i think that kelly's drumming has such personality that it it's it really is part of the sound of fantastic planet if he plays sort of that you know mid-tempo groove that he does with those inflections mm -hmm. he does on the drums it mm -hmm. sounds like failure basically um, yeah. and I, w I was really happy to have it actually because I, I just loved when he would you know settle into a groove with failure you know at any tempo he would he just bound that band together um in a spectacular way so live was they were incredible with, with him you know mm -hmm. so I, I was definitely happy and and probably a bit of aware that it sounded a bit more failure -y, but also you know, we weren't making a big guitar record. We weren't making, we weren't recording stacks of Marshalls like they did. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we fell far enough away from it. I felt comfortable kind of copping the Kelly Scott vibe for sure. Right. Uh, track five. This is uh, maybe my favorite song on the record. It sounds a lot to me like ELO, um, and it's interesting to hear that. I think you said you, you recorded this last, um, which is interesting. Do you think the ELO, ELO comparisons fair? And Absolutely. So, yeah. were, you were you a fan with that? Were you a fan of that band? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a big Jeff Lynne fan. Um, comparisons fair? I think you know more Phil Collins even. Easy Lover, it's maybe even closer. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, that's a karaoke favorite of mine. When I used to do I've, that. Been, I've been trying to do that at karaoke for years. <laughs> it's too high. You really need a. When you hit the Philip Bailey parts, they're way too high. Yeah. <laughs> Seems some more bands that we've never mentioned on this podcast before Phil Collins, ELO, Phil Bailey. We're getting all, all kinds Bailey. of good stuff. Um, well, the question I have, I guess, is I think there's both a, a cello starts out at the beginning of the song. Is that right? Or is that a yeah. viola? Okay, cello. And then there's a violin um, that comes in. And they, they kind of play off of each other. Was that something that you figured out and then relayed that to the players? Or was that something that uh, Dave Campbell did? It was something David Campbell did. At, at that point, you know, we'd already, he'd already worked on, I think, seven or eight of the songs on the album. Um, and six months had passed. We got everything together. We're back out there recording pretty pictures. And um, so at, at that point, we were so chuffed with what he'd already turned in on the record. 
that, we, of course, just gave him carte blanche, and he came up with those melodies, and that was, you know, part, that was his arrangement. It's super special and a big part of the song. The, the solo in the song is, I think, one of my favorites on the record. Who, who played it, and what is the effect that's being pulled off there? Yeah, um, on the demo, I, I, it was, it was um, you know, a Les Paul through a boss heavy metal pedal straight into the Mackie board, into the ADATs. And I really liked the sound of it. And I had it stacked up with, you know, the three-part harmonies. And Ken thought that the song was a little bit more classic sounding, and he kind of wanted to, you know, keep away from those sort of Marilyn Manson tones. I think you know the direct guitar yeah. guitars that sound like synths and synths that sound like guitars. Mm-hmm. So the compromise was to record a set of them. I think you know a set would be maybe be eight, uh, six. Sorry, um, with the direct input this time into a Neve board um, with Boss Heavy Metal though same thing. Um, and then we did the same solo, the same set of parts through AC30s, Fox AC30 amplifier, same guitar, with maybe a treble booster or you know some sort of. I think we just turned the amp up with beautiful amps rented. And um, and so Ken liked the organic amps, and I liked the synthetic direct sound. We mixed them together, and and that was the compromise. It's a very cool effect because it's kind of surrounding, but it. Um... You know, you're obviously doing the harmony there, which is cool. But it's so yeah, tight, you can't quite, it doesn't uh, right away say, oh, guitar harmony. It's just kind of like a, a pedal effect almost. You you sort of think it is at first until you really break it down. The direct guitars definitely show, you know, <laughs> overtake, I think, the, the, um, the organic one. Track six on this earth, I think that's probably one of my favorite songs on the album because it's so different than a lot of the record. It has a real, especially in the chorus, a real Pet Sounds Beach Boys feel. And I, I, I always do this when I'm confused at what's going on musically because I'm not trained. My wife's a music teacher, so I'll say, hey, what's going on here? And she'll listen to it and she'll say, oh, they're, they're doing something with a seventh or he's playing in 5-4. Um, she listened to it. And she's like, I don't know, but that's really cool. So, <laughs> um, and so I don't know how to describe it, but there's this, there's an element to the chorus that sounds really Beach Boysy, Brian Wilsony, you know, pet sounds. Um, was that something that was an influence on this song? And and um, was that something that was a studio song, or had you written that prior going into the studio? I wrote it at home in Pembroke on a guitar just with a guitar through a through a phaser and the and um so the the piano line is an arpeggio arpeggio that was picked on the guitar and um once uh it was ken's idea to you know replay make it a piano song replay it on piano and uh, so then I took on a completely different personality. Those guitars come in much later in the song, just as background parts. Uh, Beach Boys were definitely a big influence at that time. Waiting for 
Pet sounds I had digested in high school already and um, absorbed. By the time I got out to Los Angeles and was writing songs for this record, um, uh, Surf's Up and Holland became the records by the Beach Boys that were informing me. And some beautiful chord changes and, and Carl Wilson singing on those records that um, I was really just becoming acquainted with and you know, learning from. So speaking of writing, you mentioned it, or we mentioned, I don't remember who, somebody mentioned at the beginning uh, that you had, I think it was you, mentioned co-writing a song uh, with Courtney Love, which I checked the um, the Wikipedia entry. It's actually co-written also with Charlotte Caffey of the Go-Go's. How did the four of you, because Melissa Oftimer is also credited, uh, end up writing a song together for Celebrity Skin. Like, what's the background that you ended up working with her and working on Celebrity Skin? Courtney said, I have a verse. Charlotte and I wrote a verse. So they already had, they had already met up and written that, um, that verse, I think. I wrote the chords in the chorus, and everything else was kind of hammered out by the band in the room. And I think, that, yeah, that's how that song came together. I wrote the chords in the chorus, I think, and maybe suggested a melody or something. I think that's how it went. So how did you end up even playing? Like, did she know you? Or, uh, well, you... I knew Melissa. Oh, Melissa okay. and I, yeah, I, I joined, when I moved to Montreal after high school, I joined a band called Tinker and Melissa. They were kind of kings of the grunge scene in Montreal in the early 90s, and they... I'd lost a guitar player, and I was just this younger kid, a couple years younger maybe. And uh, I auditioned and got the got the job, and so I was in the cool band. And Melissa was like, you know, she was already, she was wonderful already. She was like, she seemed really fully formed, and um, so uh, you know, this all happened in six months, and then. I started my band and she joined Hole. So we stayed very good friends. And uh, I was touring, she was touring. We'd always see each other whenever we were close or at shows. She brought Courtney to a show of ours in 96, I think, in New York, Brownies. Courtney mm -hmm. really liked it. And um, when, when our tour was over, I got a phone call asking if I would come out and try to write some songs. And so uh, the tour ended in Kansas City, and I flew out and stayed, I think, for two months. And you've written with some other people or produced records with some other people? You mentioned Sam Roberts. Um, I also see, or I saw on your uh, Wikipedia, the name Mandy Moore appears. <laughs> um, when I was finishing um, tracks and mixing for Still in Rome, I was in L.A. again. And staying at uh, at a producer friend named John Fields, and he, uh, there was a studio right next door, and he was cutting tracks next door, and we had all the drums set up, and 
he's like, hey, you want to record a drum track? Yeah. So we got, I got a great sounding drum track on my record, and and then um, they switched over. They're like, hey, we're doing this like covers record for many more. Want to play rhythm guitar on it? Yeah, yeah. So I, you know, just played F, C, and B flat bar chords, I think, on Drop the Pilot. I think uh, <laughs> that's what happened. Wow, that's you don't normally just say, "Hey, you want to go play on Manny Moore's record?" That's something. No, that, no, uh... no. <laughs> that's why there's only one <laughs> such credit in my whole career, kind of like that. Um, I worked with Melissa Optimar, who I just mentioned. She made two solo records. Um, right. After she played with Hole in the Smashing Pumpkins, she made these two records. I kind of co-produced in parts both records and. Um, we wrote some songs for that stuff as well, and I worked on Ken Andrews' solo record a couple of years ago as a the, co-producer. The Satellites one. Yeah. Yes. That was a fun one. All right, track seven. I am a fraction. Looking back, you had mentioned uh, that 99 was maybe not the best time for a song like Behind the Sliding Doors to be a single, based on the fact that the radio was ruled by grunge, not grunge, but sort of the second or third tier of grunge, which was like Nickelback and Creed, and then also you had the new metal bands like Korn and Limp Bizkit and Linkin Park and those sorts of bands. I, I kind of thought that this was in retrospect um, a really catchy single or had the potential to be a really good single uh, was there any talk of this song being chosen as a single for the record or as a second single there was there definitely was talk yeah pretty pictures just edged it out but yeah it was pretty it was pretty close it would f- have fit alongside like a band folds at that time pretty uh, well. yeah perhaps uh-huh so and, and it made me think and I think you mentioned it um, you know, you write on all kinds of instruments, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, is this a song that potentially maybe was written on piano and translated to guitar, or was it, was it pretty much? Curiously, this one, this one is the, the second, and I think only only other track that that is was conceived in exactly the same way as Crazy Eyes, where it came a completely finished instrumental track from Brad Laner. Okay. And so you'll notice there's there's some weird things happening in the arrangement where the second chorus has different chords than the first chorus. <laughs> the chords go back to the verse, and even though I'm singing the same chorus melody, the verse, and we kind of kept that. We kept that stuff because it just sounded right, <laughs> oddly <laughs> enough. Yeah. Ken didn't even notice. He's like, really? Oh, okay. Slip that one by me. So when you're dealing with picking singles how much of a say do you have versus 
say the marketing department or the you know the the label in terms of picking the singles when you're dealing with a large label like DreamWorks was? Well, the um, the most serious discussion was what is the first single, and that came down to. Um, it's funny at that time we were some people were thinking September already. Um, but in the end, everyone kind of agreed that Below the Sliding Doors was the right choice. So I, I certainly didn't have any objections when they said, hey, we want to go with this. Um, people in the company like it and are excited about promoting this. So you okay with that? And I was like, yeah. So there was no, we're going to go with this song, and if you don't like it too bad, it was basically like, no, okay. We, the- no, no, I mean, if, if I, I, I could have vetoed it, but... I didn't want to. I, I agreed with it. I thought it. I thought it was yeah. the right choice, actually. And it's important to uh, have momentum, right? I mean, kind of have a team of people that if they're excited about something. You kind of want to keep them excited, and exactly. Any, yeah. Even if I did disagree, you know, you, you kind of when you're in bed with a major label, you choose battles, and you know, maybe a peculiarity of the artwork is more actually more important to me. Um, or something else, you know, maybe, who knows. Um, as it turned out, our vision for, for how to promote this record was, was kind of the same. I mean, we, we all, we had a lot of discussions and we went out for lunches and figured it all out and um, everything kind of made sense to me, actually. I felt really good. It was a good team, actually. I'm glad you mentioned the artwork because I did have a question about that. You have... Probably one of the most iconic, uh, I don't know what you'd call him, uh, artwork guys for, for uh, album covers. Um, um, a designer? A designer. Yeah, Jay, since you're a graphic designer. Or an designer. artist? Artist. Yeah. <laughs> Let me help you out there. Thank you. Well, you should have <laughs> asked this question instead of me. Um, yeah. I think his name is, I'm going to probably, Storm Thorgerson? Thorgerson, yeah. Who did... Oh, he did a couple of uh, album covers for one of our favorite bands, Catherine Wheel. But then he also did um, Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon, and a Led Zeppelin album, among many others. Mm-hmm. So how do you end up getting uh, St- Storm, first of all, which is an awesome name. Uh, how do you end up getting him to do the album cover for this record? Yeah, I was just thinking, trying to remember, and I think it really was... The enthusiasm of our A and R guy. I mean, he kind of had a. He was like, you know, this is like a big widescreen record. We need to represent it as such. You know, who who's the guy who does this stuff? Storm. We've got a budget. Let's call him. You know, and somebody called him, and he said, "Are you calling to see if I'm still alive?" <laughs> and and uh, said, "Yeah." Um, so we flew him over from England. I picked him up at the Genghis Khan restaurant in Hollywood to drive him out to Death Valley where we stayed for two nights shooting. And I mean, it was really tremendous expense when I think about it. Like something like this could never happen in my life now or, or in the lives of almost any, you know, working band really, unless you're really at the upper tier. We, um, we had, a refrigerated pickup, um, sorry, uh, like a big rig semi thing, refrigerated with six ice swans 
sculpted by this like kind of aging surfer guy who like does ice sculptures in California of all places. And he made six of them as identical as he could make them. Some were better than others actually. And we took them out and after storm, like meticulously scanning the desert landscape, we would find a spot by the road with a crew of like eight people. And uh, we would take one swan out and we'd have about four minutes of shooting because it was like 120 out there and it would just start to melt and he would get his shots really quickly. And he doesn't like to use After Effects at all. So all the whole artwork is, that's real pictures untouched that he did. And he did all of the, you know, photography himself. Like he is super hands-on. It's I got to go like... and I got to drove him out there. It was amazing. That's incredible because it seems like you could just Photoshop this and it would be way easier. But you're saying he actually <laughs> took a ice carving to the yeah. desert. Yeah. Uh, just the concept alone is just, I think like you said, uh, Jordan, that this could never happen again. Like, let's yeah. do Elmar with the world's most expensive artist yeah. and then take ice sculptures <laughs> out to the <Yeah>. desert. <laughs> No, it was terribly expensive. Like, it's really, when I think about it. I can't think of anything more expensive. Like, that wouldn't involve no. maybe going to the moon. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's awesome, though. I mean, because it's, um, I think, you know, the notion that, you know, the, the sound of the album, is, is it is very reminiscent of the 70s in the best possible way. And that's what Al Mart was like then. So I think it's, it's totally appropriate that, the, you know, that same um, sort of uh, concept and idea and commitment was was applied to the album art. Um, it's just the contrast between even 1999 and now to think, you know, album art is almost not even considered anymore, you know, so to, to yeah. go back just <laughs> and It was a only a CD, like we weren't making vinyl, you know. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Yep. Uh, okay. was, there any, uh, was there any discussion at any point? Sorry, I'm a nerdy design question. Was there any a discussion at any point to uh, to put some type on the front, to put the band name or anything like that? Or was it always pretty much... I, I, just, I remember oh. bringing it up to, to the A&R guy, Luke, and I remember saying, um, what about if we just made it like Zeppelin with no cuff? He's like, great, perfect. We'll have a sticker, <laughs> on, the, we'll have a sticker on the outside, right? I was like, fine, great. Yep. Done. Design nerd. Okay. Uh, track eight, There's Nowhere You Can Hide. One of the things I really like about this song is there's sort of a, a crisscrossing melody between the strings and the guitar parts that are going on. I guess this sort of goes back to the songwriting aspect. Was this something that you had written on guitar and then once you did the demo? I guess, did you know that there was going to be a string part going in? Or did you? Here's how it happened. Here's how it happened was the the chords were written on piano, just those very kind of simple minor chords. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I knew immediately I wanted to put a, I wanted it to be guitar-y, like it's a piano song, but I just wanted to have a real guitar imprint personality on it. So I wrote all those kind of guitar parts. And um, when we were choosing, when we were actually recording the record a year later, when we were choosing songs to have David Campbell do strings on. That was one where we thought, well, the guitars might be orchestrated enough. 
ultimately we thought, you know what, let's just give it to him in case he does something really crazy on it. You know, we could use it. If, if it's not perfect, we'll, you know, we can leave it out. And um, So as it turns out, you're right, it, it kind of, it's, it's a whole other set of melodies that he, he, so he was working off my guitar parts. He knew that they were going to be there. He heard them. That's what he was working from. So he's playing around those parts. The solo is kind of similar to what's the solo in Pretty Pictures um, or the guitar parts. Uh, is that the same technique with regards to going direct in? Yeah, pretty much. Um, it's funny. Th those are the two songs that were added last. So they were kind of written in the same week, probably, where I was like, okay, I'm going to write piano songs with a bunch of guitars on them. Um <laughs> <laughs> so that I mean that they're, they're both now that I think of it conceived almost identically like all the instruments were plugged in for both songs and just the inputs were just identical like if yeah. I played demos you they would just sound identical right and the demos were pretty good by then I was getting good at doing demos so I, I remember I played there's nowhere you can hide for Luke over the phone from Pembroke and he was like oh that's going on the album for sure like really you can tell <laughs> from <that>. yep <laughs> and yeah so we did that in pretty pictures and they're yeah very similar in that in in the, in the way they're put together song is uh, right kind of girl and this is one where i think vocally you, you push yourself a little bit um and we haven't talked much about you know, your background as a singer you know where did you learn to sing how did you perfect it who were you influenced by um just kind of talk to us a little bit about um you know your your, your past as a, as a vocalist well i think up until august everywhere i was really kind of just getting by vocally um and as a result, I was happy to, you know, be influenced by, you know, less than great singers and just like, oh, I'm going to be a vibey singer. But I don't think I really was a vibey singer. I think that once the melodic sort of, once my sense of melody came into focus around the making of August Everywhere, I knew that I needed a little bit more technique vocally to kind of pull off some of these things that I wanted to do. So I had the label connection. I was like, hey, will you guys pay for this? So, yeah. Uh, I went to see this guy named Ron Anderson, who's amazing. And he had done a lot of like the, you know, like from, you know, just a lot of big hard rock bands, like big metal bands and 
you know, I think Keith Richards and all kinds of crazy stuff. And um, so I did six months of lessons with him, just kind of like, you know, learning basic scales and like learning how to sing not so much from my chest. And um, so I improved and was able to keep those techniques. So um, I think the singing is much better on that record. So this this album was bit, uh, sort of a um, it kind of pushed you to to go and do that. Yeah, kind of- and certainly on Right Kind of Girl, I, re- I really distinctly remember um, you know during the sh- the the loud sort of intense screaming parts where mm-hmm. um, I didn't go that far on the demo. I had it kind of more spidery and more kind of like rock and roll suicide uh, by Bowie. And Ken wanted it more like the wall. <laughs> and I remember him <laughs> saying, you know, like when Roger Waters really goes for it on the wall. I was like, yeah, I know those parts. He's like, do that. <laughs> so they had like, you know, a close mic and they had like a far mic and they were compressing the hell out of it. And so it, it was really just like crunchy analog distortion. They got a really cool tone. I could see them smiling out there when I was screaming. So I really shredded for that mm. part. Um, and, and I came back and listened and I was like, yeah, good call. So how did you figure out how to do harmonies? Was that just time spent on a four track or did you, you know, through the lessons really, you know, kind of learn the basics of how to do that? No, I, I stopped taking lessons, formal lessons when I was six. So at that point I kind of just, just started figuring stuff out on my own. And when I got a four track when I was like 11 or 12 after, dabbling in instrumentals for a year I started recording my own voice and after a couple years of being horrified at that sound I started experimenting with harmonies and just kind of working out you know the I guess the kind of math of it and stuff and then just being able to like quickly go to what you're hearing in your head and just being able to get it quick and so I kind of worked that out but um, as far as like my taste in harmonies and stuff that was starting to develop like I said from listening to Surf's Up and Holland and and, and the way certain chord changes, you could get away with a weird chord change if you were able to string the melody along very simply and not move the melody around too much. And vice versa, if you have a kind of more not very exciting chord change, um, to take a chance with the melody there and kind of go off there. So that was all really just kind of picked up just through a lot of listening and trial and error on your own part. Yeah, and just sitting there with headphones and, and, and stacking harmonies, just trying them out for the you know, for the first time, like I you know, in my little demo studio in mm-hmm. LA at that time. And it came pretty quickly and, and then the songs that I was writing were kind of like fitting. You know, that it worked with those stacked harmonies. So I went with it. Track 10, Your Big Night Sandy. Um, one of the things that Jay and I, we referenced a lot of 70s bands when we were talking about this record, coming up with questions and stuff. Um, it has a 
I think because of the keyboards and the the feel of it with the big big melodies and stuff like that, which was not going on in the in the mid to late '90s. Um, one of the bands that we both went, hey, that kind of sounds like that band was Steely Dan. Mm-hmm. Um, are we off base with that, or are you just not a huge all. Steely Dan fan? Huge, yeah. <laughs> First time Steely Dan's been mentioned on the podcast. Yes. <laughs> oh. Just keeping notes over here. <laughs> and that, and you're sort of getting into bands that you're, um, you know, a lot of that Beach Boy stuff, and even Steely Dan, and where it, it becomes a lot of work to understand. I mean, if you're not really, really trained in music, it's. I, don't, I guess just an incredible year to be able to dissect what those bands are doing. I mean, it's, it's a big challenge in terms of like not only taking influence from those bands, but able to, you know, you know, I don't want to say replicate, but, you know, take that influence and actually put it to use or, or a band like ELO. I mean, it's one thing to say, I'm a, you know, I love ELO. It's another thing to actually be able to turn around, interpret what they did and then sort of write my own sort of take on it. Mm-hmm. Um, what was your you said you took lessons until six and then later on you took some vocal lessons but for the most part uh is is that the extent of your formal training in music yeah well my parents uh were both musicians or still are both musicians and um they owned a music shop and so i had access to all these instruments Uh once the store closed at 6 p.m and so at a a certain age you know 11 or 12 that became it I would just go down at night and weekends and um, bring my four track down and just move the four track around the store to the drums, to the guitars and record songs and try to write songs. So it became an obsession at around that age. And, and looking at the, uh, you know, you know, the song sort of sounded like Steely Dan. I think Tim mentioned that at that time, that was not a band to be... <laughs> You know, I don't think it's ever influenced been by. Influenced by <laughs> and just looking at the, the other bands on the, you know the, the DreamWorks roster, were... Brad wrote most of the. I think Brad wrote the music for that song, so yeah. he's. I, I don't think he he's super into Steely Dan. Um, I, I I brought the Steely Dan for sure. I think there's you know there's a couple elements. There's also there's a little bit of. Um, there was a Bowie track that someone called me out on. There's a line on there. Slither down the pole. So far, so good. Do you know that song I'm talking about? It's not popping into my... Joe the Lion. Joe the Lion. Mm. There's kind of there's a bit of Joe the Lion in there, too. That's a really so... strange song, though. I remember the, the poor A&R guy from A&M. He was based in New York, and I had moved out to L.A., so there was you know not a lot of meeting up anymore and um he was concerned about what was going on with our record but he wasn't physically present a lot of the time so he came out at one point and i don't know what we were thinking but that was the song we played him (laughs) (laughs) silence i was just gonna say what was it like touring um at that time you know with this this type of material i mean it's pretty sophisticated it's not exactly you know i wouldn't say trendy in any way I, i would say it's more timeless yeah. Um, we talked, I think you talked earlier about, you know, the, the landscape at that point was a lot of heavy bands. You were bearing, being paired up with a lot of heavy bands. What was it like going out and touring uh, for this record? It wasn't bad. It was actually our, our best shows. Um, the album 
even though it, it, it didn't become a hit or anything, it had a, a lot bigger audience than the previous two records. So when we would, you know, play in um, St. Louis or something, you know, there, there might be 200 people there and it was good. You know, the show, there was, it was, it was better than kind of opening for bands and kind of getting slaughtered by their heaviness, you know? Mm -hmm. So when, when we went out on our own, we, we went out for a couple months and, and yeah, we had really good shows actually. I remember they were small, but they were good. And mm -hmm. the band was really good at that point, I think. So you got a chance to get out there on your own. Yeah, we did a lot of, I mean, we, we opened for a few bigger bands um, and they were good shows too. But once we were playing on our own, like in the Midwest, it was really good. It was, it was good shows. Did you tour with bands that were on DreamWorks, like a, like a DreamWorks type tour? Or were you touring with like smaller bands from other labels? No, it was, um, it was other relationships that came into play at that point, I think, through booking agents and things. Uh, yeah, there was. I don't think that we played with any DreamWorks bands. Because I kind of feel like you know DreamWorks had a pretty uh, diverse label in terms of the '90s. You know, like Eels and Creeper Lagoon, Rufus Wainwright, Elliot Smith were on there. Jimmy Eat World. I kind of feel like you guys would have paired up well with, say, a Rufus Wainwright or. No, the, really, they they should have done. They should have packaged tours because there was kind of a bit of a, a bit of a an identity to the label um you know they should have done a dreamworks california jam or something yeah i mean i could totally see like elliot smith i think put out a record around this time yeah so that would have been a great artist to tour with yeah see this is why jay and i should have been running a label instead of working at a college <laughs> radio station in the 90s oh it all makes perfect sense now doesn't it it makes perfect sense <laughs> Just just keep your budgets down on the album artwork and you might be okay. <laughs> oh, no way, man. I would, I, would, I would put all the money in that. Yeah, I would have gone with the everybody gets a brown paper sleeve with your name uh, in block letters across the front. And uh, that's it. With a little recommended if you like uh, sticker. And that's, that's about all. I would have gone the opposite direction. Anyway, uh, um, track 11. Strange as they say, this is a pretty epic song in terms of it's got a big guitars on it and a big chorus. Um, it seems like it would be a fun song to play live. When you did go out on the road, who was in your touring band? Kelly Scott played drums. He had joined for August Everywhere. Peter Furlander played bass. He had been in the band since 96, 95 even. Um, and me, we were the core members. And then we hired two touring musicians who became part of our band for that tour. So we were a five-piece. Peter Thorne played guitar, and uh, Paul Trudeau played keyboards, and they all sang. We needed a keyboard player, and we needed a second guitar player to, to pull off any song on that record. Um, and we needed guys who could nail vocal harmonies. So we did a lot of auditions and brought those guys out. They were, they were great. What's that like in terms of when you're adding guys to the band? Because we always see, you know, bands where they're a three-piece or they're a four-piece, and then there's always, like, one extra person who's doing the keyboard parts or the guitar parts, and you're like, well, that guy's not really in the band. He just goes out on tour. Do you have to establish some sort of a, I guess, uh, not just being a musically compatible, but, like, I'm going to be on the road with this person, so I better like them 
too? Is that does, is that factor in when you're picking people, or is it basically just yeah. we're here to do a job and that's it? No, definitely. Uh, that was a thing for me, for sure. And as it turned out, both guys were great. I mean, one guy was Canadian, so we had all the Canadian jokes going on. And um, well, what do you mean, just, Canadian jokes? Well, <laughs> you know, when you have the van, when the bus is like half American and half Canadians, there's there's a few moments of cultural disconnect. You know, like who's Gowan? Who's the box? Who's Parachute Club? I mean, these are huge parts of our you know childhood and upbringing that just didn't. You know, we had all the stuff that um, that the American kids had musically, but we had this other, you know, 30% of stuff that was kind of just as good, but only existed in Canada. Mm-hmm. You mean like Triumph? Uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> I think they were, they had something going on in the USA for a couple of years, I think. But yeah, there's a lot of bands. Platinum Blonde, did you guys get them? Mm-hmm. But the '90s okay. did have a lot of uh, Canadian artists. Uh, oh yeah, oh yeah. Came to the like superstar so. artists, kind of. Yeah, like Our Lady Peace. Um, that was a big one. Moist. And then I Mother Earth. Moist. I Mother Earth was a little bit smaller, but they they had some college radio plays. Uh huh. Um, and then I'm Tragically a big. Hip. I'm actually a big Tragically Hip fan. Uh-huh. Growing up, growing up in Buffalo, you're pretty much inundated with the tragically hip. So, well, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. They're like the Stones. Here. Yeah, it's, it's funny, you know. I've seen them in. I saw them in Detroit when I was in college, and they played to twenty thousand people. But then they'll come down to Ohio and they'll play at like a free show at the park for two hundred people. And I'm thinking like. The people in Canada got to be really pissed because they're going to stadiums to see this band play, and I'm standing 15 feet away from them, and there's nobody else that gives a shit <laughs> standing. Well, but there'll yeah, still be one guy, one guy there with the Canadian flag. Yeah, there'll still be one guy. <laughs> there's always lots, yeah, a lot of Canadians at their U.S. shows for sure. So we're to the last track on the record, and that's "Star Behind the Star," and this is a bit different than the rest of the record. Well, it's quite a bit different. Um, I think it's in 6-8, and it has some interest, in, interesting instrumentation going on. I think this is the one that features the the drumming of um, Vinny on the tabla. And the live drums, correctly. too. Oh, he's playing the live drums as well. Okay. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about the writing of this song? Because it sounds yeah. a bit different than the rest of the record. I had the riff, um, the, the verse riff, and I had the beginning of the chorus riff. And uh, I was in France at that castle, and um, 
we finally, uh, Vinny, John Parrish, and I finally got that day alone uh, to write a song. And I said, well, I, I've got this, you know, we've got a couple hours. What do you guys think about these chords? They, 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 they like them. Um, Vinny sat down at the piano and wrote this beautiful major seventh connecting chord in the chorus. It's the chord, it's the chord right before it goes back into the A minor, the first chord of the, of the cycle. And it's beautiful because a couple of the notes ring into that next chord and it was such a beautiful moment. And so we got about recording it right away. We put two mics on the drums and we were recording through a Mackie board into an, uh, into eight ats. So it's pretty primitive, but we had a nice drum sound. Vinny, I have never played with a drummer that skilled, I don't think. And um, I did a scratch acoustic guitar and vocal live. John Parrish added the guitar flourishes later. When we got back to Los Angeles, it was like a year later when Ken and I were putting the album together and that song was definitely going to be on the album. And I played him the demo that we did in France and he said, let's keep the drums. I mean, we're not going to get Vinny in and um, try to try to replicate that. It's only two mics, but it sounds pretty good and his performance is amazing. And so there's a moment on, on the album you can kind of hear me shout at some point i go what was that or something mm-hmm. and it's 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 me being kind of knocked out by vinnie's fill from a second before because i never heard those moves before <laughs> and uh he, you know it was one take and he was just knocking me out we had we had to get rid of the um scratch take that i did because it was not really good we re-recorded everything else kept greg wells's piano at the very end and uh, and and Vinny came. Uh, we played it for him when uh, when we mixed it. He loved it. I love the string arrangement on it. Um, it made the song. It actually, actually there in the yeah. demoing process, there were people that were kind of like, ah, that song's a little bland. And I always knew it needed a string arrangement, and I was most excited about that. And I I think I may have even told David that it's like you know it's kind of pressure's on, boy, <laughs> for this song. <laughs> you got to deliver. Um, and yeah, he really made the song, I think. Took it to a whole other place. And I love the addition of the, I guess it's like a electric guitar lead, sort of halfway through the song on the, I think you play the verse and then the chorus and then you go back to the verse again. Just one of those things where it, um, it's a new instrument, sort of a new sound added in the middle of the song that kind of keeps it fresh and just yeah. points out that there's just this really like, well-crafted orchestration of things entering the song and leaving the song at the right time and mm-hmm. is that the kind of thing that um came out in the studio or, or was that something you had planned from the demo stages um most of the parts were there um the slide guitar parts are john john Parrish's, um and the rest of the guitar parts were things that i kind of had worked out in the demoing stage after I'd come back from France and had the track and I'm sure I was going to use it for my record. So I kind of worked on the guitar parts at that point. And then Mm -hmm. in the studio, getting the tones and stuff was really, I mean, Steve Churchyard, who engineered the record, um, did a fabulous job. Um, He's a real, he really knows his stuff, real old school engineer, British, you know, his first gig was engineering wings, bass, and you know, he's he's just had a real storied career and was a real pro. We Ken and I wanted we decided we really wanted like, you know, a really kind of pro solid engineer 
that knew about getting, you know, really kind of tasty tones and stuff and really knew about carving out great tones and knew about amps and stuff. So Steve deserves a lot of credit for, you know, sonically how the record sounds too. So that, I think that's a good segue into the new record. I hear, you know, uh, I'm just getting familiar with it now, but I definitely can hear some of the influence of August Everywhere on it, maybe some things that you picked up going through the process and you sort of translated into your own studio. Do you think that's the case? And um, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, and I think, um, you know, after Still in Rome and all the sort of guitar, guitar kind of stuff that I went back into, uh, I, 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 I felt comfortable writing on the piano again. And... Um, yeah, I just kind of fell into a groove in the writing process and became kind of obvious which songs were kind of feeling good together. But yeah, I think there is a, uh, a thread. Live, what, uh, what songs would you play if you were to go out and play now? Would you play anything from August Everywhere? And if so, what would those be? Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, even on the... We did some touring on Still in Rome and um, we played September already, Below the Sliding Doors. Once in a while, we did Crazy Eyes. We even did a guitar-only version of Pretty Pictures. Hmm. We, um, and Strange As They Say was the show closer on every show from the beginning of August. Every show I've played since the beginning of August Everywhere, that's in the last song. It's kind of an extended kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. I think Tim alluded to that, that we could kind of sense from listening to that on the record that it would translate pretty well live, so... That's that where sense. Kelly Scott really went to town live. You know, we really had fun on the outros for those those songs. That was show closer. So looking back on August Everywhere, I don't know if you had a chance to listen to it um, recently. Sometimes um, people don't want to listen to their own records. <laughs> I don't, I don't, we've had people that have said, oh, I haven't listened to it since we mixed it. Um, yeah, I understand the impulse. Have you revisited with an ear towards saying, oh, you know, if if we do this a song like this again, I want to try to do it this way? Or was there, was there anything that you say or you, you thought, mm, we could have done this a little bit differently or changed this or done something better here or there? Or were you pretty much happy with the way that the record came out? I'm pretty much happy with the way it came out. Um, yeah, it's, it was pretty close to the vision. Um, and also it was a liquid vision as we were doing it because, we, you know, it was... We were allowing, we were allowing each other to, you know, try stuff and and to, and to fail, you know, and out of out of out of something that didn't work, you know, maybe something great out of it. So, um, you know, the vision wasn't completed going into it, but having finished it, yeah, I mean, it's a lot of work that went into it. I gotta say, the big budget helped. I mean, it it was really kind of the the end of the end of the days of of artists being able to kind of call the shots in any way um, on the on, on making a, a record with a substantial budget. Was this recorded all to tape, or did you guys use any digital recording? Like no Pro digital Tools or anything recording, like? just a little bit of... Uh, Ken would bounce things from tape into Pro Tools to edit vocals. Okay. Because um, he found it easier. He had just gotten... He, he was just getting acquainted with... Uh, think digital performer i don't think we were pro tools yet mm. and um he initially wanted to use a digital medium for the record and i just didn't trust it yet to me it was like ah it's too new man 
I didn't understand why, but I had a feeling that we would be better served by sticking with analog tape, you know, mm-hmm. which was still kind of the norm. I mean, ADATs were huge for everyone's home studio. That whole thing was starting. Right. But, but I just didn't. And as it turns out, I'm glad because the converters in any of those systems were not fabulous, except for maybe one or two of them. But um, so I was really happy that I, I, I kind of pushed for that. And in the end, Ken was like, oh, OK, all right, it'll be fun. So how did you was redraw lines um, done with the tape or did you do this mixed or was it all re- digital? I, I, I recorded into Pro Tools and then uh, bounced stuff to to uh, to 24 track and then back okay. into Pro Tools to mix. Just to give it a tone. Yeah, it really helped on the drums. Big deal. Um, on the synths too it, it makes them kind of warble and give them a personality that I'd not heard you know when you when you take a direct signal of a synthesizer and, and, and let it hit tape at a decent volume it really kind of does something special mm-hmm. well it seems like low end is the thing that is most uh, affected by whether or not you use tape or digital like bass and kick drum and it's something that digital just doesn't I don't think it necessarily gets the same tone that when you're recording the tape not at all the, the same thing is vinyl versus CD uh, well the tape it's different than that actually but the, um, the the tape just adds coloration flat out that's um, sat, it's saturation and it's harmonic distortion that over the years uh, I mean humans have decided it sounds pleasing and um, uh, when you when you record into a digital system, you have to work really hard to get it anywhere close to have that kind of coloration. You have to kind of exaggerate things going in, mm-hmm. exaggerate certain frequencies going in, and other tricks to kind of get that that thing, that magical thing, does. Jay, do you have any more questions? No, no, I'm good. Good. I think All we've right. uh, kept them long enough. Yeah. Wonderful. It's fun. We need to do some plugging. We need to tell people they need to go to blinkerthestar.net where they can pick up the new record, uh, We Draw Lines, which came out just this past May. And they can follow Blinker the Star on Twitter at Blinker the Stars with an S. Uh, and then also Facebook. And head over to um, the IPO, which I'm glad I didn't buy because it's crashing. Every day. So I want to thank my friends who advised me not to buy the uh, Facebook stock. That was a good call. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> um, and of course, we need to thank Jordan Zardarazny. I got it right again. Zardarazny. You're, You're on a roll. Now I'm confusing myself. Yes, I got it. I got it. All right. Thank you so much for joining us and spending your time reviewing this record. Um, we encourage people to go to our website, Dig Me Out Podcast, where you can uh, go and purchase this record uh, on Amazon. Um, is it on your website as well? Can you go to the blinkerstar.net to purchase the record? Yeah, I think all the links are there. Excellent. So actually, go to Jordan's website. Don't go to our website. Uh, yeah, luck- the luckily the album way. is available, available just about everywhere, so... Uh... 
Yes. It's on Spotify. It's on Last.fm. Those sorts of places. So we highly suggest that people check it out. And if you liked uh, this episode, please stop by iTunes and leave us some positive feedback so we can um, get some positive momentum. And uh, maybe iTunes will pay attention and put us on the front page. Not begging, just hoping. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thanks, Jordan. Thank you. Good luck, gents. Thank you. And Jay, thanks for joining me once again. And we will be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. Want to leave feedback? Join the conversation at digmeoutpodcast.com for links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed. While you're there, support the podcast by visiting our donation and merchandise pages. And thanks for listening.